0: I've never had a pink martini, but I always enjoy singer, songwriter, actress, and author Storm Large performing in Myron's at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, March 10th and 11th at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. And for everything about Storm Large, you can go to stormlarge.com and you can follow her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and of course, the latest, Patreon. And Storm, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ira. Nice to be here.
0: Have you ever thought of changing your name slightly depending on the situation, Storm Medium, Storm Small, or have you always been large?
1: My real birth name, it's on my birth certificates, Susan Storm Large is my birth name. Uh, When I wanted to change my name, it was when I was in grade school and I wished I would wake up named Sarah be five foot two and 90 pounds um what happened that never that happened, happened but thank heavens thank heavens for all of you you're welcome that never happened
0: <laughs> where did you get your sense of humor from was it Growing up in that household that you wrote about in your memoir, or was it just inherent?
1: the, The character building that comes from being last name Large, being 12 years old, six foot tall. So you're acting your age and your shoe size. You have no boobs, a big mouth, and your name is Storm Large. And you live in a really small, incredibly conservative town, largely populated by a boys prep school. Nice. Where my father taught and coached. So yeah. I would say a good strong character building. <laughs> I never killed anybody or myself so here I am.
0: <laughs> and you've maintained it through all these years. So look at that.
1: Hopefully it's gotten better and, and less less uh juvenile, but I doubt it.
0: <laughs> when you wrote your memoir and I'm still amazed by that in one sense called crazy enough. It was released by Simon and Schuster in 2012. You're a notice how I use the word relatively young person so how in the world were you able to write a memoir at that early stage as opposed to waiting till you're 90, 95, 100, 105, et cetera?
1: Hopefully, by the time I'm 90, 95, I'll either be a handful of dust blowing <laughs> around or I will f- have forgotten it all. <laughs> um, I actually got bamboozled into it. I uh, I was actually talking to my friend about it last night about how, you know, growing up with uh, very limited. To know parenting, being kind of feral, (laughs) being in a very chaotic household, uh, mental illness, um, and a a golden god of a father who is very important doing other important golden god type things. (laughs) Um, You know, you can eat that, that in a way is parenting because you become the person you become either from your parents or despite them you know so it's like it is still sort of an upbringing when you are confronted with the chasm between what it's supposed to be and what it actually is and so um i don't know i i've just been i've been a performer my whole life and it was the way i found value in myself because i was always a problem i was always in trouble i was always uh angry and um i found that when i sang or when i told jokes people became delighted to be around me and so it was a it was a pretty direct <laughs> cure to my loneliness really do
0: you think it's so, also a, in a sense a, a mechanism of self-defense in that yeah yeah
1: oh fuck yeah yeah oh am i allowed to swear i'm so sorry it's okay
0: we'll let it you're fine we'll
1: bleep, we'll bleep it yeah. yeah but anyway the book uh the book came about Uh, when I was doing cabaret, the the musical cabaret playing Sally Bowles and, uh, talking with the director and I'm like, yeah, what a stretch, a a sex worker (laughs) with a drug problem. That's going to be such a stretch for me. And, uh, and he goes, Oh, do you, why don't you, why don't we talk about it? And so, you know, in character workshops or whatever we were talking about, you know, living on the street once in a while and, you know, trading your body for goods and services, places to stay. And, uh, and drugs and, um, and why were you on the street, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, after the play wrapped, the director said, we should talk about writing a one woman show. And I go, yeah, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And you know, boobs. Yay. And he said, no, it should be about your mom. I'm like, yeah, no, nobody wants to hear about that. That's sad. No one wants to hear a sad story like that. And, um, but that, in that in that journey and doing that play another friend of mine who is an author he's a sports writer but he got a hold of my manuscript for the play and he sent it to his agent and he said this is a really important story and you should really you should try to you should write a book and i'm like yeah i'm barely educated and uh i'm not a writer i'm a performer and um and no, I don't want anyone to know this about me. This is embarrassing. It's, it's like it's cringy. It's like navel gazy. Who cares? <laughs> and he said, you'd be surprised. And actually, he he was the most right out of all. He uh, called him Boss Man. What's his name? Larry Colton. I'm an asshole. I, Larry Colton, because I just always <laughs> called him Boss. Like, yo, Boss, shut up, Boss. Eat it, Boss. Larry Colton. One of my favorite books that he wrote was Counting Coup counting CoUP about a um, a girls basketball team on a on an on a Native American reservation one of the greatest heart-wrenching stories ever Larry Colton I love you Larry He's the reason why because he he was like uh, he's like you'll be surprised at how important this story is and to this day at shows people come up to me and they cry and they're like that was my mom that was me that was my grandfather that was my life you are you are the fact that you are you and that you get through this and it means i can get through this and it's just this sort of shared experience of a thing that people now it, mental illness is so much more like chic to discuss oh yes
0: very much so now it's yes it's
1: very on it's, on brand it's almost now. it's um,
0: almost like virtue signaling at this point
1: Yeah, but you know, I want to be careful with those buzzwords because the media, we, we in entertainment and we in the public world and life, we, we become the trend and then we can't fucking despise the thing we've become. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's that, it's that stupid cycle because in America, especially we are not art driven. We are, we are celebrity driven and, and it becomes this like Roman Colosseum of, celebrate the hero and then watch him get disemboweled that's the cycle and fuck you you got to be a gladiator you know you got to be everyone you get to be famous we get to steal your sex tape and watch it we get to we get to like talk to you at at dinner with your niece when even we're a stranger you're not a stranger to me you don't know me but but fuck you i know you you know it's like you become public property and so the whole like Virtue signaling and, yeah, what it's like, okay, when a, when a chick jumps out of a Bentley in L.A. in a Black Lives Matter march and she poses in her Balenciaga fucking t-shirt <laughs> and with a Black Lives Matter that jumps back in the Bentley and drives away, that's, 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 that's just bullshit. <laughs> um, but virtue signaling, it's like, I, I mean, call it, maybe call it like, I don't know, it's just truth. It's truth. The, like Ellen DeGeneres show a million billion years ago. Ever, like Ellen has also gone through her gladiator phase where right? they like tear her down. She's not nice, <laughs> you know. Ah, boo! She's not, She did so much for gays. She came out on, on her show. Her show wasn't great, sure. Okay, whatever. But I'll never forget it. Her and Laura Dern standing there, and she's like in the airport. I'm gay, and she ends up accidentally saying it all of the airport. And then Will and Grace and then, and Madonna, everyone gives shit to Madonna. Madonna did a whole lot about making, making homosexuality your neighbor, your friend, common, not freaky monster, like ghoul somewhere else. It's people, you know, so it's it's a good thing. Exposure is a good thing. Vulnerability is a good thing. Honesty and transparency. Those are good things. They get, they are uncomfortable at first. But then to to sort of to, to 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 besmirch them just because they become common. Oh, you're just bi. I I used to get shit for being bi. I'm like fuck you. You're from gay people. <laughs> and it's like what the fuck. And they're like, well, you're not people? allowed well, to you're be. Just-
0: a, you're not allowed to be an individual. Based on somebody's identity, not yours, but on right, other people's right. and that's the problem. Straight
1: guys are like, Oh yeah, I'd love to see you right. with a woman. I'm like, Yeah, but what what about you and a guy? Oh no, no, no. <laughs> oh no, no. I'm like, what if I have what if I have something in my bedside drawer that might make you think differently? You know? Ah, you know. Just but things things become transparent. Right. And if they become more common and, and they become more more pedestrian, shall we? Um, it should not be it should not be slighted.
0: No, not at it all. Not when be... I when I refer to virtue signaling, I mean it in the sense that people use it as a marketing tool. That celebrities that are well known, depending on what the trend is, will use whatever's going on in the yeah. zeitgeist. I'm bipolar, right? Right.
1: But you I'm know what? About. That's that's a lot fucking better than it was in the '70s. I'll take that. I'll take. I'll take somebody trading on their mental mental challenges and their emotional challenges over where's mom oh she's tired well why where is she she's she's resting in the hospital you know what i mean yeah i'll take the bullshit any day over the fact that you can't talk about it at all
0: right no no that makes a lot of sense i already have the name for your new play it's going to be called mental illness the musical and i think it could work what do you think
1: Uh, It's already a musical called Crazy Enough, but thanks. All right. Another, or how about we rename it that? No, okay, fine. (laughs) All right. I have
0: another name for you for your next autobiography or your next memoir called Stormy Weather.
1: No, it's going to be called Tales from Abroad. I'm already working on okay. that. Okay. It's pretty close.
0: I'm good at taking rejection, so so it's fine.
1: You are. You are really good. You're a very, very confident man. Most, most men will be like, well, let me tell you why mine is better. Whip, whip, whip their penis out. Well, here, this is why I'm right.
0: Now we should point out. I love the royal we. We should point out, meaning you and me, actually. Me, I should point out yeah. to, as well as you that you've been singing since the age of five. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, that's what they say. So yeah. I'm going to have to go with what well. Yeah, the, my what well,
1: I, I I I make it officially around five because I remember the very first <laughs> song I ever wrote. I mean, I sang all the time when I could speak. I could sing, and I would imitate birds, dog noises art noises, I would imitate commercials and then I could imitate and sing along with the radio or with records and jingles and stuff. And then one summer, my best friend Daphne and I, we were eating Snickers Bar, which is by the way, the king of all candy bars. And, and it is it's like the top five national treasure of candy bars. I I,
0: I, I, I will I, I will agree um, with you up to a point, but it needs to be dark chocolate, not milk chocolate. Thank you.
1: I'm like I'm like OG Snickers. I can't eat them anymore, but I, I, OG Snickers like I, it was like you are hungry. You eat a Snickers because there's nothing in it. So I wrote. I was like, you know what? Snickers needs. We were eating Snickers. I remember frozen Snickers. So summer, and we were just like, oh, we were just like lustily eating this candy bar. And I go, so good. And she's like, yeah, it's really like the best thing in the world. I go, they need a jingle. They need a they need a song. She's like, yeah. And I hold it up, and I go, it fills you up when you're feeling down. It's a Snickers bar, Snickers bar, Snickers bar. And use the Snickers bar as a microphone. And she's like, do you think it'll work? I'm like, we need to call someone. And I just sing it over the phone, and then we'll get all the Snickers bars we want for free. So Snickers, if you're watching this, Hershey, if you're watching this, I, I just, that's the song. I I, I I only want to get paid in candy.
0: (laughs) Well, watch out with that. Now we're more, all more cautious, but in the sense of eating candy and making sure it's not going to pull out a filling, you know, because some of that sticky candy can do that.
1: True that, true that. We got to be, we have to be responsible with our choices.
0: And just because I'm older than you, I want to throw out a, a shout for the candy bar look. And big hunk. Though I want to throw those out as well for people to consider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you almost became you almost became a culinary expert, but you got diverted into the world of music, which is great for everybody else. So I have another new concept which you can reject, and it's for a new TV series called The Chef of Portlandia. What do you think?
1: No. Okay. All right, well, there you go. No, 100%. but I, I, um, I still, I am a cook, but I've, I've never studied. I was going to go to the Culinary Institute, and it was too expensive. I'd already had a career, about t- a 10-year career, before I moved to Portland. But uh, it was after September 11th, and uh, everybody just sort of got very existential at that time. And I was going to give up music and because I thought it was vapid and shallow. And because in California, it was all about, oh, you need a record deal. You need to write a hit song. Got to get on the radio. <laughs> Uh, and, and it was just all heart. Oh, you got, oh, you're really pretty, but you're, you're so old. What are you, 27? Oh my God. You lie about your age. You're really dirty. You really got to clean it up. Why don't you, why don't you send it up a little bit? you're, why don't you lose weight? Uh, and it's like, oh my God. And so basically everything was, you, you're going to be a huge success just as soon as you aren't you. And so that wasn't going to work. And then September 11th happened. Right. And so I, um, I left San Francisco, moved to Portland, really originally just to dog sit and I, and to sit and like the whole world shut down. And so I was just like, I quit, I'm going to be a chef and I'm going to learn how, cause I was also run away and homeless a lot, uh, as a kid by choice, let's be real. I wasn't houseless. Like some people are legit, like in serious trouble. Right. I would came, run away. You came from a middle class background.
0: So it's a, it was a different background.
1: Yeah, it was. We weren't rich, but we always had a place to live. And right. so I just was running away out of fear and pain and to get away from the chaos. But I thought that in term, I had a lot of people looking out for me. And what I did is if someone had a place and they would let me stay in their place, if I didn't have to have sex with them, I um, would cook. Right. And I was pretty good at, k- at kitchen sink cooking. When you don't have a mom, you're like, all right, uh, what do we have? Okay, uh, what's this? And so I would cook for people for ex- in exchange. And so I thought if I learned really – I'm a really good cook, but I don't, I'm not educated cook. So I thought if I got an education and maybe got a little education on the nutritional side, I could start a program like a Meals on Wheels sort of thing where I also – can make, I can fund it by making really good food for people and educating people how to make really good, healthy food using food stamps or, um, on a, on a, on a budget, you know, take like a can of beans, 10 different ways, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. How to, how to live, how to live and how to thrive and not, and not, um, and like go into like food deserts. I still might do that. If I ever, if I ever become rich, (laughs) <laughs> um, I would probably do that I don't want to be rich I'm not a money person I could be if I wanted to be rich right. but I'm not I think I could I think it takes just like deciding to if you're white I'm not sure um, <laughs> but I I I love doing and I love learning and I love helping that's just kind of that's my that's my trifecta yeah
0: nice um,
1: so uh, I still might do that but then the Culinary Institute was so it was Cordon Bleu so it's incredibly expensive and hard to ex- and hard to pronounce. <laughs> um, and uh, so I got a job in Portland bartending, and just so happened to stumble into the bar owned by Frank Felacci, who uh, owned Dante's, and he was a huge fan of mine. He'd seen me sing a bunch of times in San Francisco, and he had told a bunch of friends of mine saying, "Oh my God, you tell Storm Large if she ever ever moves to Portland." I'll give her a job. I'll give her a place to stay. I I I I want her singing in my club, and within six took six months of him being like, "So will you? Will you? Will do you think you could maybe?" I'm like, "No, I don't do it anymore. No, I don't. I'm not a musician. I'm going to be a chef, Uh, and and right now I'm a bartender. So no." And he's like, "Okay." And then one week, like sometime in June, he got um, kind of like the rug pulled out and a, and a, and a band canceled on him last minute. And it was a sold out show. He really, really needed someone to fill it. And I love Frank. We're still very close friends. And, um, and he, he's like, you'd be doing me the biggest favor. You could just get up there and sing whatever, just anything. And I'm like, yeah, I got, I got you, man. And so I put some friends together and that's been, it was the balls. And now it's still uh, James Beaton who plays piano. He played piano in the balls. He plays piano in Le Bonheur, which is <laughs> really right. just the boner since we're moving on up in the world. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah.
0: And oh, and at, nice. that, was,
1: that was like 20, yeah, 20 years ago. 21 years ago. Yeah.
0: Tell us a little bit about, and I want to get into what the show is going to be like at the Smith Center in a moment, but tell us a little bit about your attraction to the Great American Songbook and how you take those songs and do different things with them.
1: I've always done different things with lots of different songs. Like the Balls, the premise was um, taking punk rock and heavy metal songs and making them sort of, we called it lounge core. And um, because it was sort of a joke because I thought it was going to be a temporary situation. I was going to sing. It's going to be a joke. I was going to do like Bad Brains and Sex Pistols and, and Black Sabbath and like make Black Sabbath into a rumba and like sing uh, sing um, like Bad Brains as like a do-do-do, like a doo-wop, slow, sexy. And, um, and that was like sort of the joke. And so the songbook, the Great American Songbook, I resisted for a long time because I I, I wasn't a fan of musical theater, uh, really. Um, I mean, I love standards. I love you know Ella Fitzgerald and and Billy Holiday and and um, you know Julie London, Rosemary Clooney, Peggy <clears throat> Lee, probably too. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they're all showgirls, right. and they, you can tell they're badass. And they had, and they back then they had to go through a lot. So. Uh, they're good songs, but the thing I didn't like about it was the people who hold the American Songbook in such a precious position, as if that is good music, and Bad Brains is not good music, and Sex Pistols is not good music. I'm like, so what? What? So what do you mean? You know, listen to this Cole Porter tune. A lot of people get pissed at our reimagining of the Cole Porter. We aren't changing it we are just emphasizing right. the lyrical intensity that is a description of an addiction of a of a psychosis of a myopic addiction and in the song it's an addiction a creepy like stalkerish addiction to a person's love but in reality it was heroin and people are like oh the great american songbook it's white crisp shirts and and crossed knees, and long skirts, and nothing dirty or bad, and we all know how it ends. It's safe Hollywood endings, safe Broadway, happy, happy endings, and it's like, no, man, it doesn't really end happy for a lot of artists. It doesn't even begin happy for a lot of artists, but, you know, I'm more into, like I said, I'm more into honesty. I'm more into what's real, what's vulnerable, what's raw. I'm not trying to stick people's nose into the pain and the anguish of life with art Uh, I don't believe you have to suffer for your art but I believe a lot of artists suffer because we don't in America in particular we don't value art we value fame and like like for example I remember years ago there was a touring Vincent van Gogh um, art installation not the van Gogh immersive thing that's going on now Mm -hmm. this was his paintings and it was in LA and I wanted to go so bad and it was something like a like $280 to go. Wow. And I stood there and I go, can you tell me without any doubt whether or not Vincent van Gogh ever saw the equivalent of $280 in his life? I'm waiting. Go fucking Mm -hmm. find me the proof that he ever got paid enough ever. He lived in squalor. He was reviled. He was crazy. He was tortured. I mean, yes, he was, he got celebrated at some point while he was alive. But the fucking nerve to, to velvet rope and make too precious music and art, the taking the nothing and putting something in it, something of value, something that makes humanity make sense, something that makes love make sense, something that makes heartbreak less isolating. I mean, I'm biased. Obviously, I'm biased, but I... I that's my problem with the Great American Songbook and it, and people who hold it and it's like a precious high, high mark that this is real music, pop music. That's real good music. That's that's garbage, that that dirty whatever, you know? <laughs> I think it's we're all saying the same thing. See me, hear me, I'm in pain. And there's a lot of people in the same pain. I'm in love and a lot of people love this way or nobody loves this way, but everybody feels that way, you know? It's yeah. like... It's humanizing, yeah. it's important, and it's vital.
0: Oh, well said. The human condition, as explained by Storm Large. So Storm, <laughs> <laughs> who has lived a lot of it, tell us a little bit about the show at the Smith Center at Myron's. Are you changing out any elements of your show, or are you adding new stuff, or what are you going to be doing there?
1: There's definitely going to be some new stuff. I just love that room. Can I just, can I just gush about the people who yes. work there? The cabins. The Kevin's who work there, I love those guys. I love the crew. I love the food. I love the guy who owns it. I love his wife. I love the, the audience because that is a showbiz audience. L.A. and New York, there's a show. New York's a great showbiz audience. L.A. is a showbiz audience, but they're like, oh, I could do better, you know. They're always like, they're kind of like, they're a little more like, a <laughs> little less likely to give you any any like, mm, yum. <laughs> but man, Vegas, they're like, we are here for it, and they want it, and they're And they're hungry and they're fun loving and they are they're in the middle of the fucking desert. And if one grenade goes off in the wrong direction, we're all screwed because there's no water. And but they don't care. They're like, we don't care. We're fucking here for it. We'll drink tequila. We'll wash with rum. We're here. Well, just, I love it. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Vegas in general, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Smith Center.
0: Well, huge. just for the record, it's not really one guy that owns it. It's a nonprofit. So it's, uh, but Myron Martin is head of it. So he's the one right. Right. It. And that's the room that, that is named after him as well. So uh, yes. yeah, the audio was wonderful there. And just, oh God, they're the best, best crew. Yeah, no, it is. How do you find traveling? Because you've done it, obviously a while and and it's not it's not a, it's not a um, insignificant question because it does have wear and tear on people over the years but are you are you acclimatized to what you have to do to go from venue to venue and city to city
1: mm, well it depends leaning towards no because it's gotten a lot harder since covid because we're ma- we're still playing makeup where i'll play a show in like jacksonville florida and then i have to be in uh hawaii and then i gotta be in in uh california for four shows and then maybe i get a day and then i have to be in new york but it the the routing is getting better but i think that flight i think that air travel is unsustainable honestly the way it is now we really need to focus on infrastructure in this country and um obviously with trains and roads and gasoline as, as people are like making different vehicles and now and then and, and trying to lower emissions, which is absolutely important. But I, I really think that that air travel isn't sustainable for health, health of the planet. And it's the most exhausting part of our of our touring is getting to the airport, mm-hmm. getting in line, going, getting a lot. It's like that's probably 50 percent to 70 percent of our stress. All right. So I'm thinking that in the future, for me anyway, I'm looking for um, for buses to. I I, I live part time in my van, I'm not big enough for the band, but I'm looking <laughs> right. at buses to to convert and get really strong tires. I'm I'm looking at never touring in the winter. We just canceled three shows. We almost died in Chicago trying to drive through a snowstorm to get to Iowa because all the flights were canceled because the storms are getting more intense and 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 the weather's getting more intense and so you know i just had to cancel three shows in the northwest because of this freak snowstorm that no one's seen since the 40s and i'm like all right well i think what's going to happen is we're going to only tour from april to december and then the rest of the year we're going to write we're going to get healthy we're going to see our families we're going to take time off whatever and you know, just have it be like a kind of a school, a reverse school year where we tour all summer <laughs> and fall. Right. Um, but, but tour in mostly one vehicle, all of us in one vehicle, we could live in part time and, and do, and tour regionally, have the tour bus itself open up and be a, be the venue. If we have, if, you know, we want to, I don't know, get, get a permit and pass a tip jar. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I like that concept. That's that's good. Music for music for everybody everywhere. And, um, I really, yeah, I really feel that that air travel is going to, which I, I fear because it's such a massively huge employer. Um, and I have no, I have no ill will towards airplanes or air air control or, or the uh, airlines in general, you know, I love getting to fly over an ocean to go and, and sing in London. I mean, I, I, I love that. I love going to see my stepsister in Greece and I love, I love to travel. I love to travel, but I just don't think it's sustainable for much longer. It's just gotten, something has to change. Something major has to change. I think. Well, listen. I don't know that. if that answered your question. Yeah, no, no it
0: absolutely did. Uh, let me ask you one quick question before I let you go. Uh, We've got a, about a minute left. Who was your most important role model if there was one person? If you could summarize in about a minute, if you can.
1: Off the top of my head, I never took music classes. I was never really educated. I was always in trouble. I was always considered to be a bad kid. And I, you know, you treat someone like they're POS enough, they're going to start to act like one. And so, anyway, when I was a senior in high school, my father taught at high school. And I did get to have some voice lessons from this army sergeant. I think her name was Ruth Cooper and she was tough. Nobody liked her. She was (laughs) scary. She was loud. She loved me. She loved me. And, um, all these pretty, like pretty singers and, and, and musical theater people were all like, she's really mean. I don't know what you think about her. And I was like, I fucking love her. I think she's great. And I came in one night, one day to my, lesson and i was kind of kicking kicking chairs and crying because like someone just threw me it through like punched me in the hallway or like something just something bad had happened or whatever and i was trying to warm up and i kept welling up and couldn't really sing and she she closed the piano she goes you know what i go what she goes they don't like you here i go yeah i know she goes you know why i was like no She goes, because you're talented, Hmm. you're good, and you scare them. Don't change that. You're good, you scare them, you're talented, keep going. That was the first time ever anyone said that to me, ever, and like literally saw me. Like I knew when I was really little and I was just sort of, there was a hallway in third grade that I could sing in that echoed, that I would like sing songs and practice because I wanted to sing to my mom when she would come home to the hospital. Because I thought if I could pick the right song, and I sang it well enough, she'd stay and not go back to the hospital. But I was a and I could, I would catch teachers just being like, "Was that you singing?" <laughs> yeah. Wow, and that would be it. But they wouldn't say, you know, they wouldn't be like, "You should do music." You know, my dad would be like, "Well, she just wants attention." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I want attention. I do." I actually do. I don't have parents. (laughs) Um, But Ruth Cooper did it for you. And she just, you know, there's a lot of psychological studies on resilience of children who are uh, like traumatic backgrounds. It just takes one, one charismatic adult. And it doesn't even have to be someone you're with all the time. It's just someone sees you and they're like, you have value, kid. You have value. And you matter to me. That's all it
0: takes, one. And boy, she nailed it. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been singer, songwriter, actress, and author Storm Large. She's performing in Myron's at the Smith Center this Friday and Saturday, March 10th and 11th at 7 p.m. For ticket information, go to thesmithcenter.com. For everything about Storm Large, go to stormlarge.com. and You can follow her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Patreon. Storm, thanks for being on the show.
1: Ira, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate you moving the time for me.
0: Absolutely. See you next time.
1: You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas
0: with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. I'll be,
1: I'll be,